0: Thanks, worship team, and good morning, Highland Church family. Let me open this up in a word of prayer as we dive into our teaching time this morning. Father, we have sang some beautiful truths this morning. This last psalm particularly is illuminating and encouraging for us. For truly, all that we have need of, your hand hath provided. Help us to find gratitude and security in knowing that your faithfulness is so great. And your faithfulness will be demonstrated in a very clear and profound way in today's text. So just speak to us and help us to be refreshed as we catch a glimpse of your goodness and faithfulness and love towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We live in an incredibly large and diverse nation. Uh, We have diverse climates. We have diverse topographies, diverse wildlife, diverse cultures. And each distinct region of the United States has its own subculture that differentiates itself from all the other regions. There's something uniquely different about southern living or New England living. Let me just demonstrate that, that there are associations that we make with certain regions of the U.S. What region of the U.S. do people typically associate with millennials who drive Subarus and love expensive coffee and know it's not Highland young adults on a Monday night, It's the Pacific Northwest, right? What region of the country do people associate with beautiful beaches, celebrity culture, bumper-to-bumper traffic, and massive tax bills? If any of you have lived there, you know it is certainly California, right? What region of the country do people associate with beer, cheese, and Siberian winters? Wisconsin, right? What region of the United States do people associate with losing sports teams? Chicago. Exactly. You got it. It is Chicago indeed. What area of the country do people associate with lobster, maple syrup, and fall colors? New England. Good. And what region of the United States do people associate with sweet iced tea, biscuits and gravy, fried everything, and bless your heart, right? The South. There you go. The South. Good. There is one more thing, though, that's uniquely Southern. If you have recently driven through the American South, you've probably encountered this thing more times than you can count, even if you didn't know the name of it. Uh, Right now, there is an invasive plant species that has overtaken the South. It is called, anybody know? Kudzu. Kudzu. Very good. It's called kudzu. Kudzu is a creeping climbing perennial vine that was first introduced in the United States in 1876 at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Kudzu was originally indigenous to Southeast China and more predominantly Japan, and it was first introduced as an ornamental uh, kind of landscaping vine. It was very popular because it has a sweet smelling bloom and it's very sturdy and very decorative. However, it found a more widespread use during the 30s to the 50s in the American South. The Soil Conservation Service, a former government agency, believed that kudzu would be the silver bullet for the deepening problem of soil erosion in the South. They thought it would help with soil erosion. So they started planting kudzu en masse everywhere, thinking this was going to be the solution. Little did they know, they had just given a dangerous invasive species a permanent foothold on the American uh, American soil. Southerners quickly realized that this vine touted as a miracle was actually quite destructive because once planted, kudzu cannot be controlled, contained, or eradicated. Here's a picture of what a hillside that's overtaken by kudzu looks like. I was just in Tennessee visiting my in-laws, and there were multiple hillsides that were absolutely covered by kudzu. Here's the incredible thing about this plant. It grows at a rate of one foot a day during its growing season. Within a single season, one vine can grow upwards of a hundred feet in length. Not only that, kudzu is a killer of biodiversity. It literally climbs over everything, all of the flora, whether it's trees, bushes, shrubs, flowers, it climbs over. It has extremely thick vegetation and leaves. And because of that, it prevents the plants from underneath from photosynthesizing. If plants can't photosynthesize, they begin to die. So kudzu, as it spreads, spreads death and destruction along with it. Kudzu is sadly here to stay because it cannot be controlled, contained, or eradicated. Right now, kudzu covers approximately 7.5 million acres of land in the South, and it's spreading at a rate of 124,000 acres a year. So those thinking that the South is the answer to all your problems, you might miss, you know, the cold winter of Wisconsin, but welcome to kudzu overtaking your life. So kudzu is a destructive plant that has had a destructive impact on the South. And I think that Kudzu helps give us a clarifying analogy for the biblical concept of sin. And this is important for us to grasp because this morning, we are going to be talking about a biblical theology of sin from our passage. Now, that word biblical theology might be new to some of you. When we talk about theology, there's kind of different ways we can approach it. There's systematic theology, which is probably the one you're most familiar with. If you attended our awesome theology nights on Thursdays over the summer, you were introduced to systematic theology where you take a topic uh, and look at all of what scripture has to say about that topic. There's historical theology, which Pastor Jeff loves, uh, which kind of shows how theology is developed throughout the church. If you've ever been here for one of our Reformation Sundays, that would be a great illustration of historical theology. Biblical theology is a little different. It takes a theme and traces its progression and story arc throughout the narrative of Scripture. And today, we are going to look at the story arc of the theme of sin, specifically through the lens of Isaiah chapter 55. And this is an important concept for us to grasp because we all have a sin problem that we need to struggle and wrestle with and understand. So going back all the way to the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2, we are introduced to the beginning of God's story, of his story with humanity and the universe. In Genesis 1-2, God is introduced as the creator. He creates everything. And as he creates, he constantly declares that his creation is good, right? Everything is good. At the, ve- at the end, he says everything is very good. But scripture doesn't end with Genesis 1-2. and 2. Scripture continues in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, we learn of something tragic that took place millennia ago. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, made a terrible miscalculation. They believed that rejecting God's original design and his revealed revelation and directions would unlock the good life for them. It would enhance their experience in this universe. And because of this, they willfully and intentionally disobeyed God. They consequently invited the invasive species of sin to gain a permanent foothold in God's good creation. And just like kudzu, once sin was introduced, it quickly multiplied and took over everything. The vines of sin grow quickly and outpower everything in its path. And as it spreads, the vines of sin bring about with it death and destruction and decay. So now... The original landscape of God's good creation is still here, but it's covered by a thick blanket of the invasive species of sin. And just like kudzu, sin is proven to be impossible for human beings to control, contain, or eradicate on our own. So as we use the word sin this morning, we're going to think of it in a couple different ways. But one of the ways I want you to think about sin is through the lens of this illustration. Sin is an invasive spiritual species that needs to be eradicated from God's good creation. And we need to think deeply about this topic because sin is undoubtedly the greatest problem our world faces. Sin has overtaken this creation and brought about it with the distortion and destruction and corruption of everything good that God designed. Not only that, sin has not just permeated creation, sin has permeated our hearts. We are now impacted by sin. We make sinful choices. We are sinful beings. And the danger of that is what James tells us in chapter one of his epistle. Sin, when it's fully grown forth, uh, fully grown, brings forth death. Sin always produces death, which is not a good place for us to be in. So this morning, we're going to work hard to craft this biblical theology of sin and trace its story arch through scripture. But as we continue on, I want to think about sin in another way as well. I want to have a more technical and personal application of what sin looks like in our lives. Sin is any thought, action, affection, or inaction that deviates from God's intended design or his revealed direction in Scripture. So think of that broad definition and what types of things fall under the umbrella of sinful uh, things in our life. You have sins of commission, unrighteous deeds, evil things that we commit. You have sins of omission. We sin by not doing good things that we know God calls us to do. Not only that, we have sins of affection. We can do the right things and it can still be sinful because we're doing it for bad motives and the wrong reasons. And in God's economy, that's still a deviation. Who typifies this in the New Testament? The Pharisees. They tithe all the way down to the, the, the mint and, and herbs from their garden, and yet their hearts are filled with greed and immorality, so they're doing the right things for the wrong reason. So sin is really a deviation from any of God's designs or directions in our life. And that's typically how we think of sin. So we're going to think of sin in two ways, this more narrow way, but also the broader way of recognizing sin is not just evil things we commit. Sin in scripture is oftentimes personified as our enemy and this invasive species that's wanting to exert control over us. Think of how God speaks to Cain in Genesis 4. Cain brings forth a sacrifice to the Lord and it's rejected because it's the wrong kind of sacrifice with the wrong heart and Cain is furious at God. And God appears to Cain and what does he say? He says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you, but you have to rule over it. So sin, in this sense, we can really think of it in two ways. More narrowly, it's specific instances that we sin every single day, and we can probably think of many, for we're constantly deviating from God's design and directions. But more broadly, we can think of sin as our spiritual enemy, this invasive species that wants to dominate and control our hearts. If that's true, then there are a couple important questions that we need to ask and answer. How? can sin be permanently eradicated from both our hearts and God's good creation? And second, how can we be set free from the destruction and death that sin has undoubtedly already brought forth in our lives? And we need to answer these questions because we're all sinful beings. Romans 3, Paul tells us no one's righteous, no one understands, no one seeks after God. We all are sinful and broken people. Sin has enslaved each and every one of us. It's not just crouching at the door. Sin has moved its way into our hearts. We are enslaved to our enemy, sin. So we're going to examine the answer to these two questions by examining Isaiah 55. This amazing chapter of scripture is going to reveal many things about sin. We're going to see kind of five movements of the story arch of sin. We're going to look at the curse of sin, the insanity of sin, the conqueror of sin, the antidote for sin... And lastly, the ratification of sin. So as you turn to Isaiah 55, let me give you a little bit of background information since we haven't been in the book of Isaiah recently. Most commentators believe that Isaiah 55 concludes a larger teaching unit within the book of Isaiah that runs from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 55. And if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, you know that this is probably the most famous section. This is the section that has all of the prophecies about a person that we call the suffering servant. This outlines how this suffering servant, this promised Messiah, is going to come and deal with the sin problem and allow God's covenant people to be in a right, restored, redeemed relationship with him once again. And chapter 55 ties all the threads of that section together and gives us this beautiful passage of the hope that we can find in Jesus. So I know reading a full chapter of scripture is a little ambitious and long. However, sometimes it is good to do that to give us the right context. And not only that, there are a few chapters in scripture that surpass Isaiah 55 in either its poetic beauty or the hopefulness that it gives to humanity. So let's read this passage together. Isaiah 55. This is God speaking. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Notice God says, I'm giving you an invitation to come and experience something, and you don't have to bring anything to the table. It's free if you come to me. I will provide it all. But then he gives a contrast in verse two. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? He's not talking about literal bread here. He's really talking about uh, what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. Why are you toiling for things that are vanity, vanity, vanity of life, emptiness, fleeting? they're, They're not leaving you satisfied. He says, you're expending all of your effort, all of your time, all of your resources on things that are empty. Why not come to me? For the satisfaction that you look for. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I will be faithful to the covenant I made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Behold, I made him. Uh, I'm going to spell out who the modifiers refer to. In this chapter of Isaiah, there's lots of him, he's, who's, and you don't really know who it's referring to. So I'm, I'm, this is Andrew's insertion there if you're wondering what the brackets are for. Behold, I made him, Jesus the suffering servant, a witness to the people. He is a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you, referring to Jesus, shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. This is the foretelling of the gospel going out to us, the nations who uh, formerly did not know God and were running to him through Jesus. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he, God the Father, has glorified you, Jesus, the suffering servant. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked person forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as in heaven are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Pause there for a moment. Notice that in context, we oftentimes use those verses to refer to the inscrutability of God's mysterious ways. So when God does something that we don't understand, we say rightly so that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and we're not always going to discern God's plans. That is absolutely a implication of this passage, but it's not the only implication. Notice that there's a contrast between God's ways and thoughts and the sinful person's ways and thoughts. And what God is saying here is that a sinful person recognize and wake up that your ways lead to brokenness and dissatisfaction and devastation and follow my ways. My ways are better. My ways are perfect. My ways surpass your ways. Follow my directions because I have given you my directions not to be restrictive and arbitrary, but to give you abundant life. I have the right directions. Continue on in verse 10. God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, notice in these verses what God is referring to. God is saying that sinful people If they come to him for forgiveness, they can be 100% confident that he will abundantly forgive. That's the context. He says, you don't have to fear that I'm gonna change my mind. You don't have to fear that I'm gonna make a promise and renege on it. You don't have to fear that what I've said will not come to pass. When I speak, it will happen. When I make a promise, it will be fulfilled. When I make a covenant, it will be honored and ratified. God is saying that you can take me at my word. My word will always be accomplished. What an amazing hope and promise for those of us who have a relationship with the Lord. And then in verse 12 and 13, he says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In Isaiah 55, God compellingly summarizes his plan to eradicate sin from his creation once and for all. And as we look at this chapter as a whole, we see a big idea beginning to emerge. God is telling us that sin never satisfies. That's what he's saying here. Sin never satisfies. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they wrongly believed that sin would unlock the good life. They believed the satanic lie that sin and going out on their own way and not esteeming God, but thinking that the creature was greater than the creator would bring about happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction. Yet they soon learned that sin overpromises and underdelivers. Sin does not satisfy, it does not bring the good life. It just unlocks destruction and death. Yet billions of people fall for the same satanic lie every day we're still drawn to the lie that sin will satisfy us, that sin is the path to the good life. However, this passage is clear. It's only the suffering servant, and it's only Jesus, and it's only a right relationship with God the Father that we can experience the good life that God created us to enjoy. Jesus is the only person who can fulfill the longing of our hearts. Isaiah 55 opens by reminding us that rather than bringing satisfaction, Sin brings a curse, and that's the first aspect of sin that we need to understand, the curse of sin. In Genesis 3, we learn that when sin entered in creation, sin brought with it a profound curse, and that curse is multifaceted, and in this passage, we see at least three aspects of what the curse of sin looks like. Sin brings difficulty, sin brings dissatisfaction, and sin brings death. First, sin brought difficulty into God's good and perfect creation. Look again at verse 13. This is describing the restored creation, the new heavens, the new earth, once the curse of sin is lifted. uh, lifted. Notice the contrast that God gives. Thorns will be replaced by the cypress tree. Briars will be replaced by the myrtle tree. This is a reminder that we currently live in a world that's filled with thorns and thistles and briars. From Genesis 3 onward, part of the curse was by the sweat of your brow, you will now have to work. Creation is broken and fallen, and now there are thorns and thistles, which means God's good creation, his good gifts, also now bring about difficult effects because of our sin. Our soil does not just produce plants. It produces thorn, thistles, and weeds. The weather not only produces nice light rains that water our yards, it also produces heavy rainstorms that drop limbs from your tree in your front yard on your fence, which might have happened to us a couple weeks ago, right? Not only that, the microorganisms that give us health and keep us healthy, there's many inside our body, there's also other microorganisms that bring about decay and death in their pathogens. The sunlight, that brings about photosynthesis also gives us skin cancer, right? The reality is every time that we long for a world without sickness, pain, or natural disaster, we're actually longing for a world without sin. For sin was the invasive species that brought all of those terrible realities. However, sin just, the curse of sin doesn't end with difficulty. It also brought about a profound sense of dissatisfaction in the human heart. Look at verses 1 and 2. God has an invitation. He says, come to me if you're thirsty, hungry, and dissatisfied. He's not talking about literally someone who's hungry and thirsty with physical hunger and physical thirst. Rather, that's a poetic way of saying someone who is dissatisfied and longing and lacking fulfillment and and searching for meaning and value. He says, those that have eaten of the fruit of sin and realize that sin does not satisfy, it does not produce the good life, come to me. And that's such an important concept to grasp because so many people in our culture wrongly cling to the hope that sin will fulfill them and sin will satisfy. They've lost sight of the truth that sin can only bring momentary fun, but never lasting fulfillment. Sin will not satisfy. God has created us in such a way that we have a spiritual thirst for meaning, significance, satisfaction, and fulfillment that can only be found in Him. It's as St. Augustine said in his confessions uh, nearly 1,600 years ago You have created us for yourself, O Lord, and you created us that our hearts are restless until we find rest in You. Trying to find rest in anything else is like trying to quench our physical thirst by drinking seawater or salt water. Though it looks like it's going to be helpful, the more you drink it, the thirstier you become, it will not satisfy. Sin brings difficulty. Sin brings dissatisfaction. But lastly, sin brings death. Look at verse 3. God invites us to come to him that our souls may live. If we need to come to God so our souls may live, what does that tell us inversely about the state of our souls apart from God? They are dead. And that's what we see very clearly in Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. By our very nature, we are children of God's wrath because of the sins that we have committed. The final facet of sin's curse is by far the most insidious. All throughout scripture, we see that sin brings death to everything that touches. And there's two components to that. There's physical death and spiritual death. We are all going to die physically one day. Whether you're spring chicken or 120, you're going to die at some point. I, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you that, but we're, we're going to die, right? But physical death is not the end. We also recognize there's a spiritual death. Our, our souls can be in a state of death where we, if we do not have our sin problem taken care of, we'll spend eternity apart from God in the abode of the unrighteous dead called hell. So as we've seen, the cost and consequences and curse of sin are intense. Sin brings difficulty, dissatisfaction, and death. Yet even knowing this, how many times do we run back to sin? Sin is an addictive abuser. And that really brings us to the second facet of sin. Sin is insane. We see the insanity of sin. I don't know who exactly said this. It's attributed to different people. But one way insanity has been defined is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. How many people daily do this when it comes to sin? Sin keeps promising, hey, the good life is just one indulgence of the flesh away. Sin keeps promising the good life is within reach if you just go after it one more time, yet that good life is always fleeting. It's always elusive. It never arrives. How many Americans think that the good life is just one more purchase away? If I just had blank, I'd be happy and I would have the good life. How many men and women think that your good life is one more hookup or viewing of pornography or sexual indulgence away? They think if I just get on board with the culture and liberate myself sexually, that of course must lead to the good life because that's what the world tells me. How many college students think that the good life is just one party away, one accolade away or one job offer away, only to wake up five years later and realize a job is not as fulfilling as I thought it would be? How many burned out middle-aged people believe that the good life is just one more weekend away. They are literally only living for the weekend, and that is the only thing they look forward to. How many people believe the good life is just one click away, whether it's Netflix, TikTok, Facebook, Amazon, or Fox News, whatever your hit of distraction is, we believe that satisfaction is found in distraction. Distraction and passing pleasure, those are the only things that sin can offer. They're the only things that our culture can offer. If you look at every single thing our, off, our culture tries to offer, it will fall into one of those categories. Distraction or passing pleasure. The one thing it can't give you is satisfaction, fulfillment, and meaning. And that's the insanity of sin. We keep going to something to give us something that it can never provide. I think of how God phrases it in Jeremiah 2. God says, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and instead they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think about that image for a moment, a broken cistern. When I think of broken cisterns, I think of a Bible training school that I got to visit a few years ago in the southern portion of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a nation that has kind of two seasons, the dry season and the rainy season. And during the rainy season, they need to store up as much water as possible so they can get through the dry season. So in the training camp, on the top of all these buildings are these massive concrete jars. They're elevated cisterns. And during the rainy season, they have pipes that lead from the water source at the top of a mountain all the way down, and they fill these giant cisterns. And then throughout the dry season, that's the water that they utilize. Here's the picture God says. Sin, idolatry, all these things. They're like those giant cisterns, but they have a huge crack in the bottom. As fast as the water comes in from the top of the mountain, it goes right out the bottom, and it's never full. As fast as it fills up, it also empties. It will never be full because it is broken and cracked, and it cannot be full. That's what God says sin is like. It's a broken cistern that breaks us that keeps us trapped in a never-ending cycle of hunger and thirsting for fulfillment and meaning. But sin leaves us empty because that's its design. And so once a person understands the curse of sin, once we understand the insanity of sin, once we wake up to that reality, we should want to do something about it. We should say, I want to escape this addictive abuser. I want to be set free from the enslavement to this thing I don't like. But but how do I do that? Because the reality is we can't conquer sin on our own. We can't eradicate it from our hearts, no matter how much we want. I think of what Paul says in Romans 7. Once the law wakes me up to my sinfulness, I wind up doing the things I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. A wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh. Paul says, "I, I, I can't deal with my sin problem on my own. Thankfully, we don't have to. That leads us to the third movement, the conqueror of sin. The conqueror of sin. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Incline your ear and come to me, God says. Hear that your soul may live again. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him, Jesus, a witness to the people, a leader, a commander for the people. Behold, Jesus shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to Jesus because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified Jesus. These verses are talking about a messianic king who's going to come from the house and lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7. He will fulfill that covenant. These verses also are looking back to the entire section of Isaiah 40 through 55 of this promised suffering servant. So in this passage, we see that the messianic king is also going to be the suffering servant, and he alone is the solution to our sin problem. Only in Jesus, our souls may live again. Only through Jesus can we have a covenant relationship with the Lord. Only in Jesus is his glory made manifest. But how? How can Jesus conquer sin? Well, God powerfully answered that question two chapters earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53. You're probably well familiar with this passage. This is one of the most famous chapters in Isaiah, but I want to read some of these verses for you. Surely Jesus has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11. He will make many to be counted righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus alone can conquer sin because Jesus alone is capable of being a sinless sacrifice. As we've seen this morning, sin comes with a curse, and the curse of sin is death. And all of us have sinned. We have racked up a spiritual debt before the Lord, and because of that, we will spend eternity separated from God. That is the just retribution for the sins that we have committed. We forsook. Our creator elevated ourselves and said, God, I want to be the God of my own life. And God allows us to live out that fantasy apart from him And hell. We have no recourse to settle our spiritual debt on our own. We cannot atone for sin because no amount of moral behavior or good works or righteousness can eradicate sin from our heart. The moment you do something good, guess what? You do something evil again. We can't deal with our sin problem. We can't pay back the debt Trying to pay back our spiritual debt through our righteous deeds is like trying to pay off your mortgage with monopoly money. You can try, but I'm guessing Associated Bank isn't going to accept your tender, right? It's not the right thing. And that's the reality with God. The only way to be free from a death sentence is to have another person voluntarily take our debt, but that person can't be indebted themselves. They must be innocent and pure and righteous, and the only person to fit that category is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. And being in the form of a servant, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead, he endured the cross. He took our sin, our iniquities. He was the sacrificial lamb who alone could take away the sin of the world because Jesus alone lived a perfect life. He merited the righteousness that we needed. Then on the cross, he exchanged his righteousness for our sin, our iniquity, our brokenness. God punished Jesus in our place. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. In a stunning turn of events, Jesus conquered the curse of sin, by becoming the curse of sin himself. God's plan of redemption to eradicate his good creation from the problem of sin meant the death and sacrifice of his own son. And why would he do this? Well, the answer is the first verse you probably ever memorized, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the broken, sinful, disgusting, immoral world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When God looked down and saw the difficulty, the dissatisfaction, the destruction and death that sin brought, he was moved with love and compassion. He's not willing for any to perish, but all to reach repentance. God paid the cost to liberate us from the very master that we willingly enslaved ourselves to in the first place. And that is the profound beauty of the gospel message. So Jesus is the conqueror of sin, but how do we access that forgiveness? How do we access the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for us on the cross? And that brings us to our fourth element, the antidote for sin. What is the antidote for our sin problem? Well, look at verses six and seven. There's some imperative action verbs that help clue us into the answer. God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The antidote for sin is astoundingly simple. It doesn't say do all of these good things and you'll be forgiven. It doesn't say get perfect attendance on your Sunday school stars and you'll be forgiven. It doesn't say go through enough righteous behavior, give enough away. It doesn't say any of those things. It says turn and trust. That's the antidote for a sin problem. Turning and trusting. Consider each of those words. First, consider turning. What does it mean to turn? Well, it's the words in this passage. Forsake his way. Let the wicked one forsake his way and return to the Lord. Turning is another word for that might be repentance. Through the power of the Spirit, We have an aha moment like the prodigal son. We wake up to the fact that we're wallowing in the pig pen of our sin. And we say, you know what? Life with my father was so much better. And I'm tired of looking to sin to satisfy me. And it can never do that. I recognize my father's so much better, and I want to turn back to him. That's repentance. It means a change of mindset and saying, oh, God's not this, this terrible person who just has these arbitrary. God is a loving father who has given me everything that I need, and I want to follow him. And then trusting means that we trust in the suffering servant. We recognize that he alone is the spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. No amount of my moral behavior or righteous actions, nothing else could atone for my sin. It's confessing in the finished work of Jesus alone that takes away the sin of my heart. That is the antidote for sin. And that's the only antidote. There is no other antidote. There is no other name given among men by which we might be saved. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. However, let's say that you do turn and trust. Does that mean that sin is immediately a thing of the past for you and you never struggle with sin again? Right? All of us Christ followers out there, we never struggle, right? We're perfect? Okay, if you said, if you said yes and raised your hand, I'd like to speak to you afterwards, okay? Because <laughs> lying is a sin and you just lied, okay? So no, none of us are Perfect. Turning and trusting is not a one-and-done thing. It's a lifelong process. The first time we turn and trust, think of it as capital T, turn and trust. Every single day is little t, turn and trust. Because we constantly are are turning our attention back to sin and we have to repent and go back to Jesus and ask for forgiveness again, but it's an ongoing process. Salvation kind of has three phases in our life. The moment we turn and trust for the first time, we are justified, which means we are declared righteous and we are forgiven for the punishment of sin for all eternity. That debt can never be imputed back to us. However, we're not yet glorified. That's when we either die or Jesus returns. And that's when we are free from the presence of sin. No more sin nature. Gone, we're healed. We live in the murky middle, the messy in between. We get to wrestle with something called sanctification. Ooh, a fun one. Sanctification is just simply, we are increasingly freed from the power of sin in our life. We no longer are enslaved to sin, but we're still tempted by sin. We still have a sin nature that wants us to leave the fountain of living water and go back to our empty idols and broken systems. We still have a spiritual enemy who appeals to that sin nature. We still are struggling with our flesh, and that's why every single day we need to continue to turn and trust. And all throughout our lives, we have to Keep our eyes on Jesus, because in this process of sanctification, Jesus is always the antidote. When you are thirsty for fulfillment and love, do not go to sin. Go to the living water. When you are hungry for purpose and meaning, do not go to sin. Be nourished by the bread of life. When you are restless and weary, go to the Lord of the Sabbath. When you are overcome by anxiety, go to the God who promises to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sin is never the solution. Sin will never satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. So that brings us to one final aspect of sin to examine from this passage as we trace its story arc throughout Scripture. We see the curse of sin, the insanity of sin, the conqueror of sin, the antidote for sin, and looking into the future, we also see the eradication of sin. Sin has an expiration date. Verses 12 and 13, look ahead to a time when sin will be a relic of the past. When Jesus returns to usher in the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, God's creation will once again be good and perfect. One day when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, sin will be eradicated for once and for all. This invasive species of sin will be permanently destroyed. Think of the picture earlier of kudzu that spread out across the hillside. In your mind, picture what it would look like for that to be done in slow motion backwards. And you just see the vines retracting all the way out until the beauty of creation is once again in view and that that vine has been removed. That's what's going to happen. God is going to renew and restore his creation and all the vines of sin are going to be retracted and forever dealt with. Death will be swallowed up by eternal life. Decay will be impossible in our resurrection bodies. Pain will be wiped away when Jesus wipes away every tear. Dissatisfaction will vanish in the glorious presence of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, this is your glorious hope. Sin has an expiration date. This is the story of redemption. And in the end, redemption wins for those who are in Christ. So here are some final words of application for us this morning as we think about putting all this together. First, if you're holding out and you recognize that you are still under the curse of sin, you have never trusted in Jesus as your conqueror. Today is the day to turn and to trust. Heed the warning in this passage. Seek the Lord while he is near and may be found. Or as the book of Hebrews would tell us, do not harden your heart if God is calling. Today is the day. Put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you're out there and you say, I've messed up too much. Sin has too great of a hold on my life. I don't don't believe I can be forgiven. How could God ever want someone like me? Take hope in the part of this verse that says, God will abundantly pardon. Our sins are many but his grace is more and his word will accomplish what it's set out. He says he will forgive you, you can be forgiven. Stop focusing on the gravity of your sin and focus on the expansiveness of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. For those of us that follow Christ and the messy in between of sanctification, what are broken cisterns and empty idols that you've been looking for to fulfill you? What are you working for that does not satisfy And where are you settling for table scraps when Jesus wants to give you the rich foods? And lastly, when we're walking through hard chapters of our life, remember how the story ends. The end of the story transforms the way we experience it now. We know that sin is not eternal. We know that we are more than conquerors through Christ who sets us free. Sin has an expiration date, we can live victoriously Even though the victory has yet to be finalized or realized fully, even though it is finalized in Christ. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, this is an amazing passage of scripture, one that is filled with so much imagery and hope and beauty. We're so grateful that though we have introduced the curse of sin to your glorious creation, that you didn't leave us to our own devices, for we cannot contain control or eradicate sin on our own. We are broken, we are weak, we are in need of a Savior. And Father, there are so many people in this world who wrongly believe that sin is the gateway to the good life. But we recognize sin is never the gateway to the good life. It only brings destruction, pain, and death. So Father, help us to see that Jesus is the answer we're looking for. He is the living water that satisfies our thirst. He is the bread of life that fills our hunger. He is the Lord of the Sabbath who gives us rest. He is gentle and lowly and a Savior worthy of worship, the only Savior worthy of worship. So if there is anybody here who does not have a right relationship with the Lord, may today be the day that they turn through the power of the Spirit and put their trust in Jesus alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.